Well, welcome to Salem Chapel, whether you're in this auditorium or you're watching online. So great to have you here this morning. If you're new with us, my name is Johnny Pereira. Have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Salem Chapel. Um, I've had a, I've had four weeks off uh, from being on this stage. If you're new with us, every uh, year the elders just give me time away in our family to just rest, and then also just to reflect on this past year and what the Lord has done, and look forward to the ministry year that's coming up. And obviously, this is unique. We didn't really go anywhere uh, this time uh, for obvious reasons. But man, it was great for my heart, and I know for Lori's heart, I can speak for her as well, for us to just sit under the word of God here. We watched online like some of you are doing now for the first two weeks, and then the last two weeks we were here present even though I wasn't preaching, and so let me say thank you uh, to Aaron and to Will Plitt and to Mark. Man, such an amazing job. My heart was blessed. And uh, man, I'm so thankful uh, that the word of God just continues to go forth on this stage, whoever is up here. But I, at the same time, I am excited to be back up here. And I count it a privilege. And so I'm glad that you're here today. And I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. That's where we're going to be in uh, the passage of Scripture we're going to be in this morning, specifically in verses 25 through 37. And as you're turning there, let me just set up this series, because this is the first time I've done this. Uh, when Aaron set up this, this series that we are in called Sunday School Stories. Let me give you the idea behind the title of this series, because I was the one that came up with it. How many of you, uh, I'm curious, how many of you spent time in what is proverbial for proverbially called Sunday school. Raise your hand. Okay, a little less than the 9 a.m., but nevertheless, majority of you. So the majority of you know what I'm referring to. Here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to be mistaken and leave those of you who are like, what is Sunday school? I don't want to leave you all out. So Sunday school was, still goes on today in some churches. Uh, where I grew up in the church that uh, I grew up in, and we had Sunday school. For us, it was before we did like what we're doing right now, where we gathered all together and had kind of like a main service. We would meet before, and the, and the adults would have their little Bible study classes in different rooms at the church, and the kids would also have uh, their classes. And so, man, children's workers back then were on another level, because they did it like two hours a Sunday. Um, so kudos to them. Maybe greater rewards in heaven. Who knows? Depending on their attitude. But nevertheless, when, when, when I was in Sunday school, anyone hear of this term flannel board? Do you remember flannel board? Like the, like, like the felt board and then you had like these characters and you stuck them on the board and the teachers used them to tell the story? Like I remember those. In fact, I remember my first uh, time working at a job that wasn't the church that I grew up in because I was a pastor's kid, so they didn't really have a choice to not let me do something. Uh, but when I was in college and I interned uh, at a summer at a different church, man, I was like going into that, going into that church. I was like, man, I wonder when the preacher's gonna let me preach on a Sunday morning. And <laughs> you know what he had me do? Little did I know. You know what he had me do? He literally brought out this massive box that was about this big and about this thick and he was like, hey, here's what I need you to do first. And he wanted me to cut out all of the flannel board little figurines. <laughs> Thousands. Like the little, like little prep, little like rocks. 
that you had to put on the board because after all, it had to be legit and you had to have like not just the people but also the landscape that was correct to the time. And so it was a very humbling experience but whenever I think of stories like we're looking at, I think of flannel board. Or maybe you grew up and they had like these flashcards that they held because after all, they didn't have LCD screens and you know, ProPresenter and all of those different types of things. And so you grew up hearing many of the stories that we are looking at in the Gospels, very familiar stories. In fact, I wonder if this is true of you because it's been true of me as I've listened to Mark and Will and Aaron talk, teach. The pictures of the flannel board or of the flashcards that I saw growing up are what are coming to mind as we're walking through these passages of Scripture. So we titled this series Sunday School Stories, but here's what I want you to do, especially today as we look at a very familiar passage of Scripture, that for people who don't even believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, don't ever have, have never gone to church, this story is probably familiar to them. And I want to challenge us that as we look at this passage of Scripture today, to ask ourselves, not, Lord, is this a lesson that I've learned, but is this a lesson that I am living? And so with that said, let's look at verse 25. Jesus says this, and behold, or Luke says this, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Who's him? That's Jesus. And I think right there, isn't that interesting that it says the lawyer wanted to put Jesus to the test. How often is that our posture with what we know the Bible says? Eh, I know, Lord, this is what you say. I know this is what I've read. But God, is this really what you mean? Does it really mean this in my particular situation? Where is the line between obedience and disobedience? Like, don't we oftentimes do that? We're no different than the lawyer. A lot of times we like to put the Lord and what he says to the test, which is what this lawyer does. Look at what he says. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus literally asks him this question in response to the question that the lawyer asked. How many of you love that? Like when you ask a question, like, what do you think I should do in this? And they're like, well, what do you think you should do? Don't you love that? This is totally free, right? It has nothing to do with the message. Totally free. You didn't pay for this this morning. What a great leadership lesson. Like it was told to me a long time ago, leaders ask more questions than they do talking. And I love how Jesus asks this guy, answers this guy, or should I say, with a question in response to his question. And what is Jesus doing here? He wants the man to reveal his heart. So he says, well, how do you read it? And look at what the lawyer says. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself, A plus. The lawyer gets an A plus. He passes Jesus' test with flying colors, not a 98, not a 97, not an 85, 100%. Man, he answers him absolutely correctly. And look at what Jesus says. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Verse 29. Now we get the motive behind the lawyer's question, but he desiring to justify himself. And how often do we do that when we open up God's word? 
Well, I'm going to open up God's word, but as I read what I what God's word is saying, I'm looking for ways to justify my actions. Rather than putting myself before God's word and saying, Lord, challenge me, convict me of my sin, encourage me, whatever, Lord, you want to do, I'm laying myself before your word. I mean, Hebrews 4.12 speaks of the word as it's something that is sharp. It pierces to the joints and marrows. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's why we say here at Salem Chapel, when God's word is open, God's mouth is open. But man, how often am I... Maybe how often are you to be guilty of wanting to justify ourselves when we approach God's word? Look at what verse, look at what the lawyer says, desiring to justify himself. He says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus doesn't answer him directly again. He gives him a story. He gives him a parable. Look at what it says in verse 30. And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Can you Already picture the flannel graph or the visual that you had in Sunday school? I can. Verse 31. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed he came to where he was. And when he saw him he had compassion And he went and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Now, Jesus answers the lawyer and probably the crowd that is assembled as well. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he, that's the lawyer, said... The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So you have this lawyer. It could also be the Hebrew word for lawyer also is the same word for scribe. So he could have been a lawyer. He could have been a scribe, a scribe, even more so someone who copied the Old Testament scriptures that they had at the time. So you have this lawyer or scribe, but we're told by Luke that this lawyer had an agenda. He had an ulterior motive. He wasn't, he wasn't asking this question with pure motives when he asked Jesus who his neighbor is. In fact, Luke lets us know that the lawyer already knows the right question. And Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, praises him for answering it correctly. I mean, the lawyer had the perfect theology. He knew exactly what the Bible said. I mean, he knew the Shema. I mean, the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6. That was the most precious and is the most precious passage of Scripture to the Israelites. If you see individuals that, you know, you see pictures of Israel. And when I was in Israel, they had, they had these things like attached to their forehead or attached to their wrist. They're called phylacteries. Inside of the phylactery is this passage of scripture in Deuteronomy 6. So this lawyer knew that. I mean, that, that's just something that you were taught ever since you were a little boy or a little girl. But he also quotes Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But when the lawyer asks the question, who is his neighbor, he's not asking it in such a way. And the way that it's written in the Greek, he's not asking it in, in, in such a way that he is really wanting to know. It has the idea of this. He's literally saying, what must a person do 
to deserve that I love him or her as my neighbor. See, here's what you have to understand. The prevailing opinion of the scribes, of the Pharisees, was that one's neighbors were the righteous alone. You're like, well, what did they, or who did they see as righteous? Well, here's who they saw as righteous. Anyone who wasn't these things. Anyone who wasn't a tax collector. Anyone who wasn't a prostitute. Anyone who wasn't a Gentile. Any, in other words, if you're, you know, you want to know how you're a Gentile? If you're not a Jew, that's who you is. You're a Gentile. And especially, above all, Samaritans. So if you're a tax collector, if you're a prostitute, if you're someone that's involved in some sin that the Pharisees deem uh, you should not be guilty of, if you were a Samaritan, someone who was a non-Jew, then you were not viewed as righteous, you were actually viewed as wicked. And what they taught through their actions and through what even they wrote was that your neighbor was only the people that were like you, who did what you did, who had your pedigree, who were righteous. Which is why when this lawyer asked this question of Jesus, he's literally looking for Jesus to justify what he already has deemed is the answer to the question. So here's the idea that I want you to get this morning. It's this. That I am loving God and you are loving God when I, when you, are not placing limits on whom you call as your neighbor. Whom you call as your neighbor. And so what I want us to do before we get into this passage of scripture and unpack it is I just want us to take a moment to pray to the Lord because we have a promise that when God's word is open, he's going to speak. But let's pray that we are not like the lawyer who's looking for reasons to justify ourselves this morning, are looking to reasons to put Jesus to the test, but rather looking and saying, Lord, how does this passage of scripture apply to my life today? Lord, we're here today. Our lives are before your word this morning. Lord, people who may have their Bibles open in their living rooms or wherever they may be listening to this, God, we are ready to hear from you. Lord, we know you will speak. God, give us ears to hear eyes to see, hands to do what you are calling us to do in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if we've said that the idea this morning is I'm loving God when I'm not placing limits on who is my neighbor, then I think we need to find who our neighbor is. Because the lawyer asked that question and obviously he has the wrong answer. So here, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. Who is your neighbor? Here it is. Every person who has a pulse. Like if we weren't like doing social distancing right now, I'd say reach over and, you know, feel the pulse of the person next to you. It might be somewhat awkward. Aren't you thankful for COVID for the first time in your life? <laughs> so I'm not gonna do that. So just take, your, just take your hand over your wrist. And anyone who has a pulse, why? Because every person is made in the image of God, imago Dei, every person. There's no wiggle room in that. That's about as broad a brush as you can have. That is your neighbor. And listen to me, we have to get this as we unpack this text. Our love for all people, say that, all people. Our love for all people indicates, indicates 
to ourselves and others the authenticity and health of our relationship with God. You want to know if your relationship with God is in a good place? Then you say, how am I loving my neighbor as myself? The people that God puts in front of me, my neighbor, my people that I work with, the people that I learn with, the people that God places in front of me, those divine appointments that come out of nowhere. Am I loving my neighbor as myself? Because if I am, if I am taking that seriously, that is an indicator of the authenticity and health of my walk with the Lord. Write this down. This isn't on the screen, so get this. I cannot love my neighbor as myself without a biblical view of myself. Did you get that? I cannot love my neighbor as myself without having a biblical view of myself. Let me give you some scripture for that so that's not just a, something I came up with. John 4.19 says, God loved me. I love God. Why? Because he first loved me. Was there anything about me that made me lovable before God? No. Wait a minute, you're saying that about me. You say that about yourself. <laughs> That's, like I, yes, I know I'm, I may not be lovable before God, but neither are you. I was just trying to trip you up. But think about that. I love God because he first loved me. I wouldn't have loved God unless I knew the type of love that he had for me. Well, what type of love did he have for me? Well, Romans 5, 8 says, at my worst, in the midst of my sin, not that God looked at me and said, man, he's got plenty of potential. Man, he can really do something for me if he just loves me. No, no, no. In the midst of my sin, that's when God showed his love for me. How? Because Christ died for me and he died for you. Why do I make that a point this morning? Why do I say I can't love my neighbor as myself without a biblical view of myself? Because when I understand God's love for me, that is a motivation for me to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, because I understand the unconditional, unprejudiced love that God had for me when I had nothing to offer God. But when I have a biblical view of myself and I'm understanding, wait a minute, it's level at the foot of the cross. There's nothing in and of me that would have deserved or warranted God's love. Then what bright and motivation do I have to deem and put limits on who I am to love as my neighbor? Because God loved me without limits. So the people that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, it is an oxymoron for people like that who have received God's love not to want to extend that same love to every man, woman, and child. Well, what are the limits that we often place on whom we love as our neighbor? Well, I was thinking about that this week, and I just came up with these that maybe we need to check our heart. How about this limit? Different beliefs. You're working with someone and you're like, man, they don't even believe God. They're total atheists. They want to have nothing to do with God. They think what I believe is absolute nonsense. So? They need you to demonstrate God's love for them more than anything else. That you love them in spite of what they believe. Like where do we get this idea that I'm only supposed to love the people that believe the same thing I do? 
Even though if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you, we, we believe and we know and we have absolute truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. I don't compromise on that, but at the same time, that is not compromise when I love someone who believes something different than me, like myself. Different beliefs. How about this? Cultural differences. Let me just give a silly example. Like, oh man, that guy's a Yankee. That was the Yankees. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in Florida, so I don't know what I am, but it's Yankees. Oh, man, he or she, they didn't grow up in Winston. They weren't born here. No, 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 no. They only get so far into whatever's going on here, right? Cultural differences. That's subtle, but how often does that put a limit on who we love as our neighbor? How about this? Socioeconomic differences. And I just can't relate to him or her because they didn't, they have, they don't have what I have. They don't, they don't do what we do. Like we just can't relate. Socioeconomic differences. How about this? Racial differences, right? And if that's not ever glaring right now, racial differences. Oh man, I can't sit down and listen to him or her because I'm coming and believing that what they're saying can't be like racial differences. How about political differences? I mean, every one of these that I mentioned, I can't scroll through my Facebook feed today without getting hit with every single one of them. And depending, and I'm not even, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. Limits everywhere that we are putting so subtly that we don't even realize that we're doing that is limiting who we believe we're supposed to love as our neighbor. And Jesus says in verse 28 to the lawyer, if you do this, if you do what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, do this and live. Now let me say what this doesn't mean. Jesus not saying that you can earn your salvation by being a good neighbor He's not preaching a social gospel that says if you're the greatest humanitarian in the world that you're gonna earn your way to heaven. That's not what he's saying. Here's what he is saying, and I already said it in a few minutes ago. The fruit of the gospel taking hold in my life is me loving my neighbor as myself. That is what Jesus is saying. Now, Jesus gives this parable, which I've always heard parable defined as this way. So this definition isn't new with me, but it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now, verse 30, look at it again. It says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So there's a picture behind me of the terrain from Jerusalem to Jericho. And you're like, well, where's the road, Johnny? My point exactly. It's a treacherous place. It's it, it, it literally was, uh, there was this descent that would take place from Jerusalem to Jericho that would go down about 3,300 feet. It was a 20-mile stretch of road. There's another picture just showing you once again another visual, after all, we're visual creatures, right, of what that journey would have entailed. And in this journey, because it was so treacherous, because there were so many places that were hidden, robbers and thieves would hide on this road to steal and to harm those who were traveling. So this was a treacherous road. So the question that we need to ask ourselves as we've read this passage of scripture with this idea that I'm loving God when I'm not placing limits on 
who I'm called to love as my neighbor, here's the question we need to ask ourselves. How do we avoid placing limits on who I love as my neighbor? How do I avoid doing this? Because there's not a single person I would venture to guess in this auditorium or watching this online right now that would disagree with the statement that I gave this morning. But it's not just enough to say, yes, I agree with that statement. What we need to do this morning is to remind ourselves or maybe allow ourselves to be placed our lives before the word of God as we prayed and say, Lord, search my heart and let me remind myself of how do I avoid these things. And I want to give you three practical ways, three applicational ways from this passage of scripture. Here's the first one. And it comes from verses 31 and 32. I avoid excuses to ease my conscience from engaging in the opportunities to love my neighbor as myself. We can make a lot of excuses. Here's why I say that, because Jesus here in this parable introduces two individuals that would have been held in very high esteem by the lawyer and anyone else that was listening. See, he first mentions the priest. Look at what the priest does with this man who's been beaten and left half dead. It says, the priest was going down, verse 31, to the road, and when he saw him, you need to circle those two words, encourage you to write in your Bible, he passed by on the other side. Now, here's the, here's the context of why that was significant, and the, and the listeners would have understand this, and the lawyer for sure would have, that if the man lying on the roadside was dead, and that priest went to that man and touched that man, and the priest evidently, in Jesus' story, assumed that he was dead. If that man, if the priest touched that man, he would have been called ceremonially unclean. Because the priest's job was is to offer sacrifices for the people and to do the business of worship. And so he had to be ceremonially clean. There's a lot of different descriptions of that in Leviticus that we don't have time to look to, but there were certain things that they had to do. There was a way they needed to bathe themselves. There were certain things that they had to refrain from in order to be ceremonially clean. And one of the things was you can't touch a dead body and be able to do the work in the temple. Pretty good reason for this guy not to attempt to see if this guy was alive. But here's the problem. It seems to indicate in the language that this priest wasn't going to Jerusalem for temple worship and to do the things in the temple. He was leaving. Because Jericho was a place where many, many priests live. I mean, 20 miles on foot seems ridiculous to me. Never walked 20 miles in my life and don't plan to. But to them back then, that was a fairly short journey. And so a lot of priests lived in Jericho. So this guy was going back to his home. So all of a sudden then, what does that make his excuse? Say this with me, lame. Say that with me, lame, lame excuse. Because this individual didn't have to worry about being ceremonially clean. Why? Because he was done doing what he needed to do to be ceremonially clean. So if he helped this guy, he would have been fine. Now let's look at the Levite, verse 32. And it says, he came to the place and saw him. Circle those two words. But he passed by on the other side. Now here's what you need to understand about the Levite. The Levite wasn't as high ranking as the priest. But they were highly privileged. And they oversaw worship and services. So they served the priests. Now you come to this phrase, and he came to the place. That's not mentioned of the priest. 
Here's what that literally has the idea of. He actually went up close to this man and he probably would have knelt down. It has the idea that he got closer to the person that was beaten to observe him closer than the priest did. Which means the Levite, because he got closer, would have understood that this person wasn't actually dead but in need of help. But what did the Levite do? Well, he at least kneeled down. But it says he got up and he passed by to the other side. Now here's what I want you to see in this very familiar passage of scripture that you've probably heard a million times and you can think of the pictures right now in your mind. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to see the similarity between both of these individuals because in both of these individuals in verses 31 and 32, you have the same phrase, they both saw him. The Levite even got close, saw that he was hurt. The Levite acknowledged that he was hurt, but they made excuses. Here's some of the excuses that I think they could have made, though we don't know what excuses they would have made. We just know that whatever was in their mind, it compelled them not to help this man. And I want to give you these excuses they could have made because I want us to think, are these some of the same excuses that we make? Here's the first one. Oh, man, it's going to get in the way of my current responsibilities. Like, man, I got a job. I got a responsibilities at home with my wife, with my work. Like, like, these are responsibilities that were given to me already by God, and so I can't flake on those responsibilities to help someone who's in need. So, therefore, after all, I'm a busy guy, so I'm going to keep on walking. Could have been one of the excuses. How about this? They were too tired. I mean, think about the priest. Man, all I've been doing all day long is serving people. I'm way too tired. I got a 20-mile hike in front of me. Too tired, can't do it. How about this? They didn't want to be late to their next engagement. Man, I've been serving all day in the temple. I've been helping out these priests. Like, man, I got a family at home. They're wanting to see me. I got a hot meal that my wife slaved over to make for me. Man, I want to be loving to her because I want to eat that meal when it's hot and I don't want it to be cold. And, and, and we go on and on and on, right? Man, I gotta be, I'm going to be late to my next engagement. Maybe that was an excuse. How about this one? They were afraid. I mean, after all, this is a treacherous journey from, Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Maybe they were afraid. They were afraid that they'd end up like this guy. Or they were afraid what someone would think if they got their hands dirty. They were afraid. How about this one? Here's an excuse maybe they made. Well, I'm going to pray for the guy. I'm going to pray for him. I'm going to go down. I'm going to kneel towards this guy and say, man, you're in rough shape. But I'm going to pray for you. Right? Often do we do that. I'm going to pray for the guy. I'm going to make an excuse to ease my conscience. How about this one? I know, they saw the guy, and because I saw the guy, man, when I get home, I'm going to tell everybody that they need to go and help that guy out. Like, I'm going to see him, I'm going to acknowledge that he's hurt, that he's dying, that he's in need of help, and I'm going to make sure everybody else knows about it. And what am I doing? What were they doing if that was their mindset? They were making excuses to ease their conscience. And hear me on this. Here's the reality in the day that we live in today. We live in a culture that believes that seeing those in need and acknowledging those in need and pointing out 
those needs is the same as doing something about it. We live in a culture like that. And I'm not saying it's not important to see the need and to acknowledge the needs and to point out the needs because that's where it starts. But we have gotten ourselves tripped up into thinking that doing those things is the same as being a part of the solution. We have got up into thinking that me typing on this is the same as me actually putting to work these. Because these weren't made to just do this. We got to remind ourselves of that. I mean, I think to myself, man, there, I see people that are poor and that, and that are hungry and that they need food. Well, let me post on Facebook that that's a need. Awesome. Well, man, I know that sex trafficking is a, is a big deal right now, so you know what I'm going to do? Once a year, I'm going to take a red magic marker, and I'm going to put an X in my hand and post it on Instagram, and I'm going to be a part of the solution. Oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to post something to talk about racial injustice and how it needs to be solved and how the church needs to step up. Awesome. But if I stop with this... And I don't say, how am I supposed to engage in being a part of solving the problem? I have missed it entirely. I am no better than the priest or the Levite who see the need, acknowledge the need, even check it out even closer, but do nothing about it. We have to remind ourselves of that reality and stop avoiding the excuses to engage in the opportunities that God gives us to love our neighbors as ourselves. You're like, man, where, do I, where in the world would I start? The need seems so over the top. Can I just encourage you with this? Let's focus on one. One person. I mean, we're in COVID times and we got a lot of people watching online for good reasons and we're not all assembled here like we normally are. But even in a crowd like this, if every person said, God, give me eyes to see the one, think about the difference we can make in this community. It just starts with one. It starts with you inviting someone that's vulnerable or someone that's a different race than you or someone that's an economic, different economic class than you or someone that's just different than you in some way or form and just actually acknowledging and saying, wait a minute, let me, like, let me just bring them into my circle. Let me hear their story. Let me acknowledge what their need is and let me pray to God for how I can be a part of a solution. It's just saying, God, let me just see one. And we need to avoid the excuses to ease our conscience. Here's the second thing. It's found in verses 33 and 34. I embrace the opportunities. See, I avoid the excuses, but I embrace the opportunities to exercise my God-given responsibility and privilege to love my neighbor as myself. I mean, these priests and these Levites were privileged people. And if you've got a roof over your head and you know where your bills are getting paid and you know you're going to eat today, when you go home today, you are privileged. And I need to engage and embrace those opportunities. Here's why I say that. Look at verse 33 again. Jesus says, but a Samaritan. Now, we in our today, we would just keep on reading. But you need to understand that when Jesus gives this story, remember, this is not a literal event. This is a story to get across to heavenly point. And Jesus gives this story and he says, 
He says, okay, you had a priest and you had a Levite. And they're like, oh man, surely they would meet the need. And Jesus says, no, they didn't. They would expect Jesus to give another illustration of someone who comes down the road, maybe a common person who was a Jew, and that would have been revolutionary. But when he says, but a Samaritan, the people that were asleep during the story up to this point all of a sudden woke up. Because here's what you need to understand, and Will touched on this when he spoke about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. But the hatred between the Samaritans and Judea, man, was visceral. It extended over 400 years. There was 400 years of history with this, and it centered around racial purity. Sound familiar, right? But because... The Jews, the people in Judea, the southern kingdom, worked hard at keeping themselves pure and not intermarrying with those that conquered them. They viewed themselves as superior because the people in the northern kingdom, the Samaritans, they intermarried with the Assyrians and they were viewed as less than. So much so that even in the book of Nehemiah, when the Samaritans come to try to help rebuild the wall, the Jews want nothing to do with them. And so the Samaritans actually build their own temple on Mount Gerizim and the Jews tear that temple down in 126 B.C., So that just gives you a little context that to say they didn't really like each other was an understatement. They hated one another. The Samaritans were viewed as less human than the Jews. And Jesus says, let me tell you who comes to save the day. Not a Jew, a Samaritan. And it says, a Samaritan journeyed and he came to where he was and when he saw him, I'm in verse 33, he had compassion and he went over And he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. He set them on his animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. Here's what I want to do in these verses here. I just want to answer this question. Man, how do you embrace the opportunities that God gives you? And see them as a privilege and see them as something to steward for God. Well, here's what you do. The text says it. I mean, I'm just saying literally what the text says. It says the Samaritan came to where he was. The man didn't have the ability to go to where the Samaritan was. The Samaritan went to where he was. And if we're going to embrace the opportunities that God has given us, that we are to steward, that we ought to see as opportunities and privilege, then we need to go where the needs are. Go where there are. I want you to say this phrase with me. Let me say it and then you say it with me. You are an agent of change. Say that with me. You are an agent of change. Some of us have got tripped up into thinking, well, I'll help as soon as the Salem Chapel tells me when the next outreach activity is. Like, praise God, we've had an awesome opportunity up to this point to do Crash the Dash and to look for ways to partner with other churches even to serve our community this week. But man, if you're waiting till next year to do that, you're missing the point because you are an agent of change. You have the opportunity, you have the privilege, you have the platform to be able to engage in certain opportunities that I don't have. You are an agent of change. If God God has you, just take your pulse again. If it's beating, God's not done with you. Like when Johnny checks out, you can be assured God says, That was it for you. Come on to heaven. 
But the reality is that every one of us who are breathing right now or have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are here because we are an agent of change. 2 Corinthians 5 says we are a minister of reconciliation. We are an ambassador, God making his appeal through us. You are an agent of change. Don't allow the enemy, don't allow Satan to steal you from that, to rob you of that opportunity. You are an agent of change. This Samaritan understood that. It involves you every day. Maybe, maybe tomorrow will be the first day that you pray this, and I hope that you will if you haven't prayed it already. And I need to pray it tomorrow as well. Praying this prayer, God, would you give me today the eyes to see and the means to meet the one need that you place in front of me today. Just one. And you know what I've found whenever I pray that prayer? That is a prayer that God answers every time. God may not answer my prayer about God. I sure hope that at some point this year my kids can go to literal school. God may not answer that prayer. But God will answer the prayer. God, would you give me eyes to see and the means to meet just one need today in someone else's life. You're an agent of change. Here's another thing that you do. It says, he saw him and had compassion. Show compassion. Love is an action. Love does not stop with this. Love is an action. It's not just seeing the need, but it's exercising the sympathy and empathy, depending on the context, to say, Lord, how do you want me to lend my hands to meet this need and to respond in obedience. Here's the third thing. Steward what God has given you because look at what the Samaritan does. It says he bound up his wounds. There are people every day that we pass by that are wounded. They're wounded. It said he poured oil and wine. Oil soothed the pain. Wine disinfected it. I wonder tomorrow if you got up or even today, because there's still a lot of day left today, if God is not asking you to say, when you meet that need, how can I soothe this person's pain? Let me first just listen and acknowledge and hear and sympathize or empathize that they have pain. And then we look on how I can, through my love, whether it's with a literal verse or living out a verse, provide wine or disinfectant to help bring healing to that pain. Because that's what the Samaritan did. He bound up his wounds. He put on oil and wine. Look what else that he does. He sent him on his own animal. He's like, no, 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 I have this animal. I have this privilege. I have this resource. Let me allow this resource to serve you. And he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. Here's something I think we overlook, and I overlooked it because I've heard this story many times myself, is the Samaritans were rejected. They were persecuted. They were looked down upon. They were referred to as dogs. But every indication is that this man who's lying on the side of the road dead is a Jew. And the reason why I say that is I believe Jesus, Jesus would have pointed it out otherwise because he points out that the person who actually does something is a Samaritan. 
So think about how much that rocked their world. And what I see is this Samaritan is an example to us that this Samaritan has every reason culturally, economically, socially to leave that guy lying by the side of the road because that guy who's lying on the side of the road, if he was living and breathing and had all of his faculties at him at that time, would have not wanted that Samaritan to touch him at all. But what does that Samaritan do? He says, I'm gonna love you the way that I want you to love me. What an amazing picture of the gospel. And what an amazing picture of not putting limits on who we love as ourselves. What an amazing thing. And isn't that what we ought to be called to do as the church? I mean, we are a place that would never say to anybody who walks through that door that they are not welcome that we would not allow anybody who walks through that door to look down and say, man, I am better than him or her. Regardless of what they believe, regardless of how they're living in the moment, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of their economic background, regardless of what they wear, and I could go on and on and on and on and on. Why? Because wait a minute, I love my neighbor as myself because I have a biblical view of myself. And so therefore, I'm gonna steward what God has given me. It leads me to the last thing and I'll be done. Third way that we don't place limits on who we love as our neighbor. I'm willing to pay the cost to love my neighbor as myself. Look at what the Samaritan does. He says, and the next day he took out two denarii. That would have been enough for 24 days of food and lodging. And he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Listen to me. It's gonna cost you to love your neighbor as yourself. If you really love them, it's going to cost you your money. It's going to cost you your time. It's going to may cost you your reputation. Your motives may be called into question. Like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that they're doing that. What do they believe? It's going to cost you. But where have we gotten in our mind that following Jesus Christ doesn't cost us? Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and do what? Follow me. It's going to cost us. But who do we love more? Our money, our reputation, our comfort? Or do we love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? See, the Samaritan had every limit placed in him, culturally, socially, economically, but he was willing to pay the cost. And look at verse 36 and 37. Jesus closes out this parable this way. He asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? You know what I love about Jesus? He could have just answered this guy in one sentence. He could have literally said to this guy, I know your motive, you're wrong, repent. God forgive me for the many times that I've replied that quickly. But he doesn't. He goes through this long story. In verse 37, look at what the lawyer says. He says, the one who showed me mercy. Now, this lawyer can't even bring himself to call this guy a Samaritan. But he says, the one who showed me. And Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. You go and do like this Samaritan whom you disdain. 
So how do we view our neighbors this morning? Ask yourself that. Are you placing limits on who you view as your neighbor? Because it depends on your outlook. To the thieves, we didn't talk about the thieves, but to the thieves, this traveling Jew was a victim to exploit. So they attacked him. That's how they saw this man. To the priests and the Levites, he was a nuisance to avoid. So they ignored him. Going to make excuses. But to the Samaritan, to the Samaritan, he was a neighbor to love and help. So he took care of him. Listen, if you're here today, what I want you to understand is the Samaritan is not the hero of this story, ultimately. But it's Jesus Christ. He is the perfect example of what it looks like to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because I mentioned it earlier, Romans 5, 8 says that God loved you in spite of your sin. That your sin deserves death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you may be on the other side of this screen right now, or you may be in this place. And God has you here today so that you would place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because you can't love your neighbor as yourself without first loving God because he loved you. But for the rest of us, we need to ask ourselves, God, where are you calling me to love my neighbor as myself? Now, here's a tangible way that we can do that right now. Tonight... We have an event from five to seven o'clock and it's an event that we've put on social media. It's an event that we have let you know about through email, but unless you may be in a hole somewhere and you didn't get an email and you aren't on social media or whatever, so this is a perfect opportunity for you if you haven't participated. Kimberly Park Elementary is a school that we partner with and we've built a relationship with them and we've had to overcome a lot of walls that are put in front of us by other individuals, but praise God, we have a relationship with that school. They reached out to us and said, we are in need of backpacks and school supplies for the kids that go to our school. You're like, well, I thought everyone was learning remotely. Well, they still need all the stuff. And so if they reached out to us, then I can't think of a better opportunity for us to tangibly live out this passage of scripture than by saying, no, 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 we're gonna meet that need. They need 300 backpacks. And many have already brought them. Many have ordered on Amazon and sent the school supplies. Listen, you may be watching this from Washington State. Here's a beautiful thing called Amazon. You can go on Amazon, you can ship them, get this address, 610 Coliseum Drive, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, 27106. But the rest of us who are in this place, our first place when we leave here ought not to be where we're gonna go eat but to go and to buy a backpack and fill it up with these supplies and bring it back here tonight at five o'clock. Listen, we got a Kona ice truck for your kids. It's outside, so you don't gotta worry about, am I gonna get the coronavirus? Like, let's meet the need. Let's step up to the plate. Let's put down this and pull out the wallet and let's help meet the need. We got a school that gives us a tangible opportunity for us to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me this morning? God, we're here today to give you glory and to give you honor. God, we praise you for who you are and the love that you've given us. God, man, we love our neighbor as ourselves. You say that people will know that we are your disciples in John 13, 35, if we love one another. God, help us to do that this week. In Jesus' name, amen.